This program is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm. Good afternoon and welcome to Sweet 212 an in-depth look at the political, historical, and social issues surrounding the arts. Here at Resonance 104.4 FM, London's boldest radio station. I'm your host, Lara Alonso Corona, and I'm here today with writer Isabel Weidner to talk about their latest book, We Are Made of Diamond Stuff, published by Dostoyevsky Wannabe just last month, and to talk about the state of experimental writing in general. Isabel is a writer and critical theorist. Their books also include Godi Bubble and Liberating the Canon, an anthology of innovative literature, also published by Dostoevsky Wannabe. Weidner's articles, essays, and short fictions have appeared in international journals, including 3AM, Cambridge Literary Review, Configurations, Gores, The Happy Hypocrite, Tank Magazine, Tank Magazine and Tripwire. They are the co-curator of the event series Queers Read This at the Institute of Contemporary Art alongside Richard Porter. And they are a lecturer at the University of Roehampton, London. Hello, Isabel. Thank you for coming. Hey, Lara. So, thank you so much for having me. Uh, since we are going to be uh, talking about experimental literature, mm -hmm. and I was looking around internet for some definitions, <laughs> I, came across, <laughs> I came across this bit in the Rutledge's Companion to Experimental Literature mm -hmm. that says, the one feature that all literary experiments share is their commitment to raising fundamental questions about the very nature and being of verbal art itself. What is literature and what could be? What are its functions, its limitations, its possibilities? These are the sort of questions that mainstream literature at all periods is dedicated to repressing. Experimental literature and represses these fundamental questions, and in doing so, it lays everything open to challenge. Mm -hmm. Do you agree with this <laughs> definition? What is experimental, avant-garde yeah. literature to you? Yeah, I've heard this um, definition before. Yes, yeah, it is definitely an excellent um, way of summarizing this idea of experimental or avant-garde, or the term that's kind of most frequently used these days is formally innovative literature, I guess. Um, and it's this idea exactly that the writing challenges what writing can be or better what writing can actually do. So that's sort of meant to be um, the purpose of kind of this, yeah, like you were saying, this overriding um, characteristic that maybe holds together all sorts of experimental right, ways of writing. But I think these days, to be honest, I think that's maybe partly, it's a little bit limited because I want um, avant-garde writing now um, to kind of ask questions beyond just literature. So I kind of want to like break down this the, the kind of distinction between literature and the rest of the world a little bit, that sort of these kind of distinctions or dualisms that historically have been a little bit become a little bit ingrained in the ways we think about literature as this completely separate, rarefied thing. So I want to, yes, I want to ask questions about literature. Yes, I want to kind of challenge certain, certain assumptions about literature. But I also want to ask questions about the way we live now, about the ways that our um, bodies sort of exist within um, structures of oppression or however you want to call it. I want to think about queer existence and my own lived experience and about all the things that interest us now in literature. So just kind of bring these, all of these things together a little bit more. And, and how did you personally come to start writing experimental, you know, the, in the experimental form? In that tradition, yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I did come to, I obviously come out of um, the exact, I come out of um, kind of what I these days call canonical avant-garde literatures. I come, I've had an education in the 80s, 90s in Germany at the time, which I left when I was 20. But back then I had um, kind of a, a decent um, 
decent ex um, education in Germany and we were introduced to kind of modern the moder modernist canon including Kafka and so on so quite challenging stuff in uh, at school um, then and that's kind of stuff really intrigued me then and I went and read all of Beckett I read all of the I read all of the canonical sort of um, modernist um, works at the time, James Joyce and so on. And I think what attracted me to them at the time was this idea that I w there was like levels of meaning that I couldn't put my finger on immediately, especially not as like a uh, 17, 18 year old reading that stuff in uh, English, <laughs> in a foreign language. So there seemed to be like sort of suggested layers of meaning that really were outside um, the kind of normal, straightforward ideas of meaning. And that really intrigued me, especially as a queer kid in a really conservative environment that I lived in then. So there was this idea that, oh my God, maybe there's like things that I don't immediately, maybe there's like more to it all. And I found that in these literatures. So and that's it, was a, me. it was a question of influence. Like, yeah. so I'm very, obviously as a writer who writes in a second language myself, mm. I'm very interested in how people come to write outside their mother language and for you it was a, that you were influenced by experimental writers so you started writing that kind of uh, form i guess so yeah exactly i did yeah and then it's yeah and i kept kept um educating myself in that in that tradition as well and so yeah i did um that's that is what led me to writing in that way to begin with at least that was the that these were the very early kind of starting points I mean now I have completely different reference point I would say that are often more contemporary <laughs> but um, th these were the starting points yeah I guess yeah which uh, I find it interesting because um, um, I, I've heard a lot of people talk about this and it's true I don't think the UK has a really strong tradition of experimental writing like especially compare uh, for example uh, the United States that you often talk about the influence of the new narrative mm -hmm. movements mm -hmm. in your uh, writing. Could you talk about yeah. them a bit? So these days I'm more interested in um, contemporary avant-garde forms of writing. Um, this has to do primarily with the what with like the, the normativity of the historical avant-garde. Like I want to read work by people that are not necessarily white middle class or upper class men. Um, so one of the my more recent reference points is um, the new narrative movement in um, which emerged in sort of the US mainly around San Francisco but it's sort of more kind of sort of sprawled out from there and it was a queer working class movement of avant-garde writing that um, emerged merged there around writers like Robert Glacko and, and Dodie Bellamy, Kevin Killian, um, Steve Abbott, people like that and they um, took some of sort of the modernist experimentalisms and brought in really explicitly queer themes. They brought in the body, like kind of, um, they were sort of quite explicit sexually at the time, but that was like sort of a queer strategy, I guess, then um, to make the, the reader aware that this is not, that, that, that there's also a body that's part of, a, of the reading, reading experience. And um, yeah, so these are, these are sort of in the 70s, 80s, I would say, there wasn't um, exactly a thriving um, avant-garde literature scene happening in the UK. That would be something I would contest. Um, there, people always come up, yeah, but there was, there was like the small press movement and there were people who have been working against that trend, but really that kind of work was probably... But maybe not in the sense of really creating a tradition for other a writers, movement. a movement for uh, other writers to identify definitely. afterwards. Yeah. That's what but I'm why saying. do you think that is why in the UK is, there's not such a mm. tradition? I guess and the, 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 the simple response would be because of class. Class is really, really ingrained and in the British publishing um, Industry and publishing establishment is so com is classes ingrained in British society as a whole. But in the publishing industry, it's off the scale. Like I would say, it's um, worse than in any other discipline that I've come across. It literally suppresses um, the emergence of anything that is 
that that comes from anywhere else but Oxbridge, simply put. That's, um, that is a guess. <laughs> so I'm doing some more research into this at the moment. And um, there are exceptions and there are kind of, um, there has have always been uh, e exceptions and um, more interesting work popping up in poetry, even like in the 80s, 90s. There have been more diverse writers publishing stuff in the sci-fi and um, fantasy genres in Britain. But in avant-garde, sort of this kind of supposedly high cultural um pinnacle of literature or avant-garde literature, I think that was not open to working class or queer writers or black writers at all at the time. Or nor is it now, to be fair. Um, that's been a bit of an interest in finding that experimental uh, tradition within the UK uh, literary history. We've seen it in, you know, an interest in the works of B.S. Johnson, whom we talk about later uh, regarding your book. And more recently, Anne Quinn, yeah. who is selling relatively well for yeah. an experimental writer. Sure. Um, I encourage our listeners to listen to the Sweet 212 episode on the British experimental literature. It's mm -hmm. called The Lesser 14. Oh, wow. So yeah. Great. The Lesser in 14, sorry. So, um, do you think that right now, in the moment we live with all the crisis, after crisis, uh, people are a bit more maybe open to experimental writing than they used to? I think people are probably very open to experimental writing and also is I don't I want to make this important point that experimental or avant-garde writing now is not the same as it was in the 60s and it's not the same as it was in um, during the modern era whatever that it might be. Um, I think if it if I think people now are absolutely <laughs> desperate for more exciting forms of writing. And we can see that in, um, you mentioned that I'm doing the Queer 3 Dis events. These events are now with Richard Porter, the artist. They, these are events that um, bring together like writers that work kind of across the arts, across literature, across other disciplines. And people are turning out. I mean, people are, we sell out to, there's often 200 people, um, audience members per event. And this is not just um, the event that I'm part of. This is generally happening in kind of um, also the poetry events. Poets, the poet Verity Spot has mentioned recently that um, she doesn't know what's happening in, in poetry. It's literally blowing up. So people are um, coming out and they want to be part of a community and writers are publishing. So I think there's an absolute um, demand for this kind of writing. And also, I should say, my, my own books are selling well. <laughs> so it's like miraculously. This is, I'm not saying this has anything to do with me alone. I'm saying there's an appetite for um, different contemporary forms of um, what we might call avant-garde writing. You can call it differently even if, if you want to. Yeah, you, you mentioned uh, the events uh, you do with uh, Richard Porter. Richard Porter is also the founder of Pilot Press that puts out a, really, a series of really interesting anthologies of uh, yeah. queer writing mm -hmm. uh, based on you know, queer rage, queer joy, queer loneliness. Um, so, you know, it's, it's so old as just queer writing, but most of that tends to be experimental, mm -hmm. which means there's a really interest for marginalized people writing and reading, mm -hmm. uh, experimental writing. Exactly. Uh, and on that note, I wanted to read some of the um, introduction you wrote for Liberating the Canon. Oh, yeah. An anthology of innovative uh, writing that you did for uh, Dostoevsky Wannabe mm -hmm. last year. And kind of just, you know, the manifesto of it. Like <laughs> Bringing together intersectionality and literary innovation, li liberating the canon is designed as an intervention against the normativity of literary publishing, of literary publishing context, and the institution, innovative literature as such. We don't just work across the identity categories, BAME, LGBTQ, woman, working class, and their va various intersections. We don't just put our different to work. We also work across formal distinctions, prose and poetry, and uh, various genre discussions. And across disciplines, literature, art, performance, critical theory, and various subcultural contexts. And repressing what the cultural theorist Raymond Williams 
term the multiplicity of writing. And your, the book, the anthology, kind of tries to do that. Mm -hmm. um, so my question was, how do we do that? How do we <laughs> liberate the canon? Yeah. How do we make experimental writing, which has always been seen as you know, the province of uh, upper class uh, white men? Mm. How do we open that to marginalized mm. uh, people who I think are the people who are most in need of these kind of forms? Mm -hmm. I think it's actually happening. I think it's happening. It's happening um, because um, arguably um, at this lev level for the first time potentially um, in, UK in the UK, um, there are, it's almost like, it's a kind of almost like a little grassroots movement. I mean, I'm terming it that, so I hope it kind of acts in a performative way so it brings it into being what I name. But there are actually lots of people working um, on this kind of work and it is it does happen on grassroots level at the moment so it's not supported by um, mainstream review cultures it's not it's not really supported by it's not really happening within mainstream publishers I must say but hopefully you know they will wake up <laughs> to it all at one day as well but um, there are lots of independent um, publishers kind of popping up now and have been for some time so there are actually changes are actually happens, happening. So I think it is actually happening. So that is what I would say, like this liberating the canon anthology is one small um, pushed into that direction as well. The regularity of having a night at the Institute of Contemporary Art is like, that provides a regular, uh, kind of a regular stable series where people can come together and exchange themselves that really pushes into that direction. But, you know, it's still, it's still all, it's all happening outside the, what we might term the mainstream literary culture, uh, the mainstream literary publishing culture, I should say. So yeah. it's... Yeah, it's you, you can, we can talk now about, uh, for example, you know, your books uh, are being published by uh, Dostoevsky Wannabe, mm -hmm. uh, which are uh, indie publisher from mm -hmm. Manchester, and they have a particular model of doing, you know, the literary business, quote unquote business for them. So maybe you could talk about them. A yeah, bit absolutely. And how you came to work with them. Yeah. So shout out to Richard Bremer and Victoria Brown, who I know are listening. <laughs> so if there's a phone in, maybe they could pick up the phone now, but <laughs> maybe there isn't. So um, Dostoevsky Wannabe, they're a, a, a small press based in Manchester. And they have used kind of an innovative print-on-demand technologies to work around this idea that you need a lot of capital in order to set up a printing press. So what distinguishes them and their particular approach is that um, other than a huge amount of talent which they have, a huge amount of design skills they have, a huge amount of coding skills they have, <laughs> always sort of this kind of like more cultural capital that they have, they um, are working class people who didn't have um, financial capital to set up their publishing press. So they've worked, they were all of their books up, um, including mine, are printed with print on demand technologies with all the problems that that might entail because they run via Amazon. Um, so they've taken this kind of um, massive Amazon thing and subverted it so that they can do something interesting and politically relevant with it, which is putting out um, really formally innovative work that otherwise might not have found a publisher. So um, And also at a really cheap price because I think that's... Yeah. Really important. important. Yeah. What's the point of us writing all this, you know, experimental fiction for uh, for and with marginalized people if then they can afford it? Yeah. So they're exactly the books. This is an entire complete um, non-profit op operation for everybody involved. So ev I should say that with a little bit of care because I've recently I said I'm coming. I'm not coming from a privileged background. Um, but for the first time in my life, at age 44, I got a full-time and um, permanent academic job. So for me, saying I, w I put my books out for no profit is not entirely open because obviously it, it's, I, I, I kind of get rewarded for it ever so slightly in, a, in the academic context that I'm positioned in now. But um, technically, like 
Dostoevsky wanted to be at the moment, are working, or forever, ever since, have been doing that work for entirely free. And um, all writers do too. I, so that this is what it is. So this is still what's deemed necessary. I'm not advocating the idea that people work for free. I'm saying this: we are, we are existing in a context that is so um, biased against us and so um, non-conducive to any of us publishing our writing that this is necessary, a necessary intervention at, the at this time still. So we need uh, changes in the publishing world, mm. changes in the way we organize events, changes in the way we write. And also you mentioned that you work in academia now. Um, uh, those important changes have to happen there. And I often think about uh, what um, Linda Stubart always says. Linda Stubart is uh, a writer and an educator who did your cover mm -hmm. for We Are Made of Diamond mm -hmm. Stuff. And uh, they always talk about the importance of not continually referencing white men mm -hmm. in our bibliography. Mm -hmm. And they have a science fiction novel mm -hmm. called Virus, mm -hmm. where uh, this becomes part of the plot. Yeah. Because uh, kind of every time, it says every time a white man born of a man cites a man born of a man, every time a translucent male artist or academic or scientist in this most sterile, shallow, procreative model, she, the virus, proliferates. Brilliant. So, yeah, yeah what do you think about Yeah, Linda Stupert's, Linda Stupert's virus is um, one of the most interesting kind of novels. They probably wouldn't call it a novel, but it's like a novel-length thing, <laughs> fiction, I guess. Um, it's one of the most interesting books that were, have been published um, in the last couple of years. And yes, they precisely do that. One of the, they take this idea of a citation politics and um, weave it into their narrative. Um, yeah, definitely. And this is not just in terms of academic writing. This is also, I've also, um, this is also in terms of like the kind of works we reference, the kind of writers we reference in literature. Kind of pay attention to, to kind of like, uh, what is the point of referencing the same dead white writers over and over again if we could actually platform and support um, our peers and uh, people who actually deserve that kind of exposure as well. Um, I think this is the, the kind of citation politics is a long-standing feminist, um, feminist strategy and both Linda and mine, um, Lin Linda and myself, we're, we're both um, inspired by Sarah Ahmed amongst other people in that, in that respect. So that is definitely something we do. Um, always referencing contemporary writers over dead ones or over the classical canon also uh, helps build community. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, this idea of the importance of community is um, goes against, uh, you know, the received notion that art, especially highbrow art or avant-garde art, is always made by this lone uh, artist in their ivory tower mm -hmm. on their own. And he's always a guy. Mm -hmm. so, For sure. <laughs> so, yeah, like, I wanted to ask what's the importance of uh, community for you, uh, not just you know to help uh, others, but for your writing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's absolutely crucial. Um, in to 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 start to go back a little bit when I first started writing full time, which was in my mid to late twenties, um, I did I wrote for a long time without having any peers in writing. So that also speaks a little bit about um, t uh, speaks a little bit to that issue that we talked about before that there isn't sort of like an established experimental writing movement, especially not amongst queers in in more recent years in the UK. So basically, I was the only one in my circle of friends. So I was totally um, involved in the queer art scene. I was completely involved in the queer music scene. I was um, a musician before I went to writing full time. Um, I was part of the London um, queer scene and I there was there were lots of writers lots of musicians people who played in bands um some academics and we were all diverse we were there was sort of um diverse racially diverse culturally diverse in terms of class diverse in terms of gender but there was other than me no avant-garde novelist so I've been doing it for a long time it's kind of on my 
own, so to speak. And um, it took me ages to, this was my, my main project when I started writing my PhD was actually to find others. And now there are lots. <laughs> so this is, this is, um, it's community building is crucial because you will not have readers, you will not write well, you will not, um, it will just not be, in my, the way I understand literature or writing is not something that's a solitary experience at all. Um, we can uh, now talk about your uh, new novel. Uh, if it is a novel, I don't know if you prefer to call it just, you know, a book. <laughs> But it was recently published uh, by the CC Wannabe. And it's called uh, We Are Made of Diamond Stuff. And if you want to start by reading uh, an excerpt. Oh, yeah, I was go um, going to read um, from the beginning of um, We Are Made of diamond stuff especially because um for for those people uh, those listeners who have never heard of me in their lives i don't blame them but it's um for those of you who've never um listened read any of my work i just thought i read the beginning of it and then then you get an idea so this first chapter is called war cry babies i look like 11 from stranger things i'm 36 Similar hair, similar face, similar fears, in brackets, childhood terrors. I will not grow out my hair at the next opportunity, in brackets, season two. Hello, where am I? I'm alone on a beach, in brackets, what beach? It's early, it's cold, where's my blue worker's jacket? It's raining lightly, in brackets, a British beach. Hello, where is everyone? Oh good, it's getting lighter over the Solent. In brackets, the stretch of water that separates the Isle of Wight from the British mainland. This is the Isle of Wight of the south coast of England, the beach outside Ride. One, two, three Victorian military forts in the Solent. An early indication they have a thing about foreign invasion down here. Other than that, the beach is reassuringly pretty. Pinks and whites in this situation. Ochres, I take in the sea air. So far, so good. But looking at the sea won't help. I have talents, I'll use them. A soldier, look. The soldier is wearing an army green t-shirt with black polar bears on it. What does it mean? Black oversized joggers, white Reebok classic trainers. The pronoun is they. The soldier signals to include the black polar bears, the white Reeboks. Okay, I say. Like me, Shay, in brackets, the soldier, The polar bears and the Reeboks are new to the Isle of Wight. They are second generation economic migrants, in brackets Shea, ecological refugees, in brackets the polar bears, and African elopers, I mean antelopes, in brackets the Reeboks from northwest London. They are mobilizing to storm a fort in the Solent for military training purposes. Come? Shea asks. Yes, I reply wholeheartedly. My phone rings. Hello? According to the fraud detection team, someone, in brackets not me, attempted to pay 85 pounds to poker stars, then 500 pounds to Paddy Power, in brackets betting sites, using my debit card. The fraud detection team cancelled my debit card with me on the beach. By the time I get off the phone, the moment to storm the fort has passed we aboard. The Isle of Wight is home to a large working class demographic. Shay, for one, works in a hotel in Ride. Minimum wage rates, Shay says, but free board and lodging. Not bad as far as it goes. I have no money, no debit card, I interview for a job. This is the manager, Housemother Normal, formerly of B.S. Johnson's eponymous novel from 1971 pertaining to British avant-garde literature. Housemother Normal eyes me up, she looks unconvinced. Permission to work in the UK, she asks. Yes, in brackets, EU national. Ability to communicate effectively in English, so, so. Work experience, 20 years of it. I have worked in all areas of the British hospitality and retail sectors. Kitchen, yes, in brackets, dying inside. When can you start? Yesterday. A styrofoam box contain containing raw squid and inky ice arrives for the kitchen. I get to it, I perch entire beaches and tiny digestive tracts from maritime bodies. Sand and intestines accumulate in the waste bucket. I'm building a private beach gutting squid. 
What if this were my beach? In brackets, sandy refuse collecting in a bucket. What if this were my storm? In brackets, my fort in the Solent. I drop a cocktail umbrella into the bucket. It's like a beach parasol, only it lies on its side. Freak weather events are fairly common on the Isle of Wight. Incidentally, the sea is yellow. In brackets, yellow for volatile. I'm not going in this, I say. The polar bears survey the coastline for a while. The Reeboks get halfway to the fort before they aboard. Let's regroup tomorrow, Shay says. The polar bears are novelists, in brackets, infantry soldiers. The Reeboks are poets, in brackets, intelligence operatives. Given how busy Shay and I are toiling, that's a beautiful thing. When they're not pursuing their aspirations, in brackets, writing, the novelists and polar bears like to gnaw on raw squid. I deposit a saucerful under the kitchen sink. No one will notice. Good morning. It's house mother normal patrolling her kitchen. I employ my foot to push the saucer of squid further under the kitchen sink where the polar bears and the Reeboks are hiding with bated breath. Cut triangles, that's it, House Mother Normal says, nice and even. Then the arms, or is it tentacles, ear, pieces like hula skirts, ha ha, put one round your finger like this. Crikey, a lot of waste in your bucket. Can you make soup? Don't bother rinsing, just boil the lot, the sand will sink to the bottom of its own accord. About your contract, House Mother Normal says, yes, I'm all ears. We'll keep it under the tax threshold, shall we? No national insurance contributions, no sick pay, no holidays. Okay, I say. In brackets, not okay. Thank you. Um, this is Suite 212, a resonance 104.4 FM. And we are talking to Isabel Weidner about their latest book, uh, We Are Made of Diamond Stuff. Uh, what was the seed of the story? Because I, I read you you said that uh, you set out to write a queer working class avant-garde novel, but how did the so-called plot uh, started? <laughs> yeah, I like the so-called plot. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I never really start with a plot. I mean, the thing is, the thing is, though, that it does have a plot, which it can't be said for all avant-garde literature. And in a way, that is one of the things that I want to make that is was quite important to me, the idea that it f experiments formally. So it does experiment with um, li the literary form and that it asks all the questions about what writing can be and what writing can do. But I also wanted to make sure it kind of has a a kind of captivating plot to it or like at least an idea of a plot. So it was like combining these two things that normally um, don't sit together because kind of a plot is linked to mainstream fiction, I guess. So the fact that there is a plot is kind of like a thing, I guess, is done, is done on purpose. But um, you asked about what the, the origin was. Um, do you mean the... Right, I mean, there's two, there's lots of different themes that are kind uh, are, um, are central to this book. And um, yes, queerness and class, that's definitely the case. These are two themes that the book is investigating both formally and also in content. And then it's got lots of um, different, say, content strands in there, one of which is um, it's set on the Isle of Wight. So that was one of the starting points. Bizarrely, I decided to set this thing on the Isle of Wight, being a Londoner. Um, so kind of the Isle of Wight is an interesting place because um, my partner is from down there. So I I know I'm not from there, but I kind of know it well. And I go there um, regularly. I mean, she's from Portsmouth, I should say. That's not quite the Isle of Wight. But it's kind of a, it seemed to me to encapsulate lots of the bigger themes that are have sort of emerged in Britain as a whole, like huge class hierarchies. Obviously, it's a Brexit, Brexit voting. Um, Isle of Wight, Isle, Isle of Wight voted um, with a high majority to leave the European Union, even though there are hardly any, there's hardly any migration to the place. So all of these things interested me. So that's one place. And then there's a also a weird plot about. <laughs> Uh, fighting like some evil leopard that kind of um, 
eats all the hotel guests and and more serious stuff as well. It looks into stuff like empire, queer embodiment, whilst having a fun plot, I think. Um, yes, it's kind of a Brexit novel with all <laughs> the, you know, quotation <laughs> Everyone marks. switches yeah. off. <laughs> like, uh, how did that current political situation impact the writing? Because uh, you were in the process of becoming a British citizen mm -hmm. while you were writing this. Mm -hmm. How did that influence what happens in the book? Mm -hmm. So it's... Um, Yeah, I mean, it, it's not a Brexit novel, so don't. But <laughs> I guess it, it, I guess someone, some, someone, not me, said it's the one Brexit novel you actually need. <laughs> but that's not me saying that. So it's um, it's obviously written. I am obviously like a kind of what's now come to be known as an EU migrant. We didn't call that in '96 when I first came here, you know. But that I am, and um, the characters in the book are kind of versions of me. How how I was up until about six years ago. They're in extremely precarious um, situations. I've said at the beginning that I'm not more, now more in a more, more, more privileged situation of having a, a supposedly permanent academic job, I hope. But um, this is all literally very recent till I've moved myself up into these kind of more comfortable, um, comf comfortable situations. So the characters are me only five, six years ago, and um, they would be extremely precarious if Brexit were to happen, or even, that's, 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 that's so that it really did, that's, that's what this kind of novel explores a bit as well. What do you feel about that? <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like, uh, you know, actually, links with the next question that I had, I feel like was uh, very, I think your books are really realistic in a way, even though a lot of genre tropes happen in them. Mm -hmm. Like uh, your previous novel, Godi Bubble, was kind of a noir mm -hmm. a structure mm -hmm. inside an uh, innovative novel. And this, this one has elements of horror mm -hmm. and kind of science fiction mm -hmm. and surrealist mm -hmm. elements. But maybe it's because they are centered in marginalized people that I feel they are really very realistic because it's not the kind of characters that uh, serious uh, literature or serious writing usually talk about. So yeah. how how do you feel about the idea of realism yeah. in, in books? <laughs> yeah, I guess mine are kind of too, in, in a way this is sort of a new kind of, re a new kind of realism that is totally surreal, which is kind of what realism is these days. Um, I don't know. I mean, it was precisely my, my point was to kind of um, work across these distinctions between what historically or traditionally counts as realism and what historically counted as um, surrealism. So um, to kind of bring these, 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 um, these things together a little bit more and uh, or to work across these distinctions. And you touched on something else as well. So, yeah, it's kind of an avant-garde. It works in an avant-garde tradition as well as bringing in horror tropes or like the whole, say the whole Stranger Things theme, which is obviously a mainstream Netflix series. And this is also strategic. So I want to kind of break down a little bit this, um, these distinctions between what count counts as high culture and what counts as lower pop culture. So I really want to kind of bring these things more together yeah. in, in, the, in the way of... Uh, in the in the way right now. And also, as you also said, uh, exactly like traditionally or historically, sci-fi was kind of much more open to um, include characters that with a difference, like whether it's people of color or queer people or even working class people potentially, or even women, you know, feminist sci-fi and stuff. Hmm? Can, can you talk a bit more about how the Stranger Things came to be? Because it's one of the main, you know, threads of the yeah. of the book. Yeah, so I use a stranger, that one of the characters looks like Eleven from Stranger Things. And um, it's come about in a, in a quite a, a random way in, the f in terms of like that I'm like, it's the way I look, I mean, people on the radio won't know, is I kind of like, um, I used I used to be often, often I'm kind of like a genderqueer and whatever looking person. 
of I used to be mistaken for a boy all the time, and I probably still do now at the age of 45. But it happened in a funny way with the, the strangers and uh, the, the 11 comparison because one of my colleagues who hope might be li listening, Raquel, she actually, um, she actually sort of started, we started working together um, at Roehampton University about two years ago and she said, you remind me of someone. And I was like, yeah, all right. She was like, I can't think of who you remind me of. And then eventually, sort of after a few weeks, she's like, oh my God, I know who you remind me of. It's 11 from Stranger Things. So I was like, oh, brilliant. Yeah, I remind you of like an, a, kind of like a 10 year old person. So but this is kind of quite a typical thing that often happens to queer people like that. I sort of don't um, that people uh, have people with um, kind of who don't fit within the normative ideas of what gender is. Um, so often if you trouble sort of people's perception of your gender, you at the same time trouble people's perception of your age. It just sort of throws people off completely. So I've kind of, ta I guess, um, since people have said, yeah, you do look a little bit like <laughs> from Stranger Things. You incorporate that. I incorporate that and, and run with it, basically. Yeah. Um, uh, also, uh, there's a mix between references to, as you say, mainstream uh, stuff like a Stranger Things. Um, uh, highbrow literary stuff like one of the characters in We Are Made of Diamond stuff the villain or antagonist of sorts is House Mother Norma mm -hmm. who is uh, in turn a character taken from B.S. Johnson's uh, novel House Mother mm -hmm. Norma what, what made you include this character taken from you know kind of one of the most famous yeah. uh, avant-garde yeah. British writers yeah So exactly. So one of m one of my characters, uh, one of my villains, so to speak, is this character called House Mother Normal, which I borrowed from B.S. Johnson's eponymous novel called House Mother Normal, a geriatric comedy from 71. And um, I should start by saying that I absolutely love this book. Yeah, it's, I mean, House Mother Normal. Check it out, people. It's absolutely brilliant. But at the same time, it happens to be part of a kind of avant-garde canon that I'm now these days potentially critiquing a little bit because it's still too normative. It's still o o kind of overtly racist. We know how these things were at the time. Um, so I've borrowed this villain who was also a villain in B.S. Johnson's book. So I've just kind of lifted, lifted her into my book because I needed an exploiter like a boss um, that kind of um, ex exploits my character. So to speak, but yeah, I've on kind of on purpose also made made this connection to these kind of avant-garde literatures because they are to an extent what I come out of, even though I might to an extent now be rallying against them. But I have come through this tradition, and I, you know, it's a love-hate relationship, I guess, that I that I have with Pierce yeah, Johnson <laughs> potentially. Yeah. For me, when I read it, I felt like it was a way of um, simultaneously linking We Are Made of Diamond stuff to the mm -hmm. tradition of English literary mm -hmm. experiment, at the same time arguing against the idea that is made by and for a straight white man. Yeah. And um, it's kind of queering B.S. Johnson yeah. and it's kind of writing fan fiction about B.S. Johnson, mm -hmm. which fan fiction is for normally for subcultures, it's not a mainstream thing so mm -hmm. were you thinking about the idea of fan fiction when you wrote it definitely yeah you've said it much better than i than i've said it just then so yeah in a kind of a w weird way it's a fan fiction of a stranger things and b b.s johnson <laughs> it's a b.s johnson fan fiction and i guess this is again part of this project that brings together this high the, or that really tries to disrupt this high low culture distinction which has sort of been used historically to marginalize Um, people of color, working class people, and queer people, also also women. Um, so this is part of the exactly. So, so fan fiction is kind of like a, one that a form of writing that's considered to be like the lowest, that like at the bottom of low culture, and kind of outside the law. Yeah, exactly. Exists in a really yeah. gray area. Yeah. So this is why exactly it's this is obviously this is what I like about it. Precisely, and this is why why I did that. So it was kind of strategically. It, it was kind of strategic to bring this together with with avant-garde. You do that consistently through the book because there are a lot of uh, references. You go from 
Dennis Cooper to mm -hmm. the British Space Program uh, to Tony Harding. Mm -hmm. So it's there was apart from mixing, uh, you know, the idea of high and low culture, there was any kind of uh, program to it because I know you reference a lot of contemporary writers mm -hmm. too. So mm. yeah, no, definitely. So it's. Yeah, so there are all these references in there. It's it really exists within its cultural context and not just within a literary cult, um, context, but within a wider cultural context. And that's also um, maybe, uh, you know, to kind of appeal to audiences who don't, who necessarily felt, uh, who previously felt excluded from like the avant-garde literary um, canon. So it, it really sits within our cultural political social context now and yeah so I've also ref I reference um, contemporary writers and peers of mine like Nisha Ramaya for example Motisola Adebayo um, Jay Bernal I've sort of referenced <laughs> to an extent and this is part of what we talked about previously about this citational politics and citation as community building strategy I guess um, yeah and this idea you know again about class that you know uh, working classes can only enjoy lowbrow or you know mainstream but uh, not very quality things while you know highbrow stuff is for the upper classes mm -hmm. which you know uh, I, I think we have to fight against this idea but the idea that the working classes can only understand really simplistic stuff yeah, we definitely have to fight against that because that is still the presumption that the working classes can only only relate to mainstream stuff because it's simple enough for them to get it. Get it. So that is a an assumption that I 100% want to forever <laughs> rally against. Kind of um, arguably working class readers have really nuanced and complex ways of reading. It's just that they don't they don't want to read the avant the canonical avant garde because they're excluded from it. So it's not that they don't get it. Is that they are not interested in this boring stuff that has nothing to do with them? So, yeah, that's definitely. Um, do you want to read? You know, another. We have plenty of time. Do you yeah. want to read another? Should I? Yeah. Should I continue? So I'm literally gonna um, continue reading that opening, that opening bit where I left off just for another little while. Five minutes, maybe or so. Okay. The original, B.S. Johnson's House Mother Normal, is in charge of a fictional nursing home. She has sidelines on the go, like watering down vodka or altering the labeling of penicillin bottles for underhand profit. She exploits and abuses those in her care. I want you to pour about a quarter of these bottles into one of the empty ones here until it's three quarters full, she says to an elderly resident at one point. Three bottles pour a quarter out of that is until this one's also three quarters full. And when you've got them all three quarters full, then top them up with water from your tap. The recreational activities she provides are, if anything, worse. There's the pass the parcel game in brackets. Roll the dice when a six comes up, put on a hat and oven gloves quick as you can and hack away at the parcel until you either attain the gift of chocolate inside or someone else throws a six, whatever comes first. Turns out there's no chocolate inside this parcel, only dog shit. Violent character is B.S. Johnson's house mother normal. But B.S. Johnson violates house mother normal in turn, putting her through a public masturbation, I mean bestiality scene, with dog Ralphie, not once, not twice, but nine times over the course of the novel. Ghastly really, but funny. Funny's important. It was a different time. In brackets, some BS there, BS Johnson. Funnily enough, this is now. This isn't a nursing home in 70s London. This is a no-star hotel in present-day ride. Like BS Johnson's, our house mother normal is a bully and exploiter. But if she has the original's entrepreneurial flair and resourcefulness, then so do we. In brackets, we have talents, we'll use them. And who knows who's got what sexual kinks? No one knows, least of all me. I'm only new. House Mother Normal puts her head round the door. No hot water. No what? Boiler gone. This is England. Boil the kettle to wash up or the grease will stick. Okay, I say, I get to it. 
At a later point, Hausmutter Normal walks in on the polar bears feeding the Reeboks in a frenzy. Who fed them? Hausmutter Normal works herself up over the polar bears and the Reeboks freeloading. She's exploring the possibilities of them fixing the boiler in exchange for their squid. No, I say, the polar bears are novelists, the Reeboks are poets. It is not within their remit nor skill set to fix an English boiler. In this case, Hausmutter Normal bans them from the kitchen for life. That'll come of your wages, mister, she says. I mean, miss. Okay, I say, in brackets, not okay. Hausmutter Normal is off. Off where? Just off, busy. Now it's just Shay and I holding the fort. This fort, we are tied to this fort. No storming the actual fort in the Solent, no dreaming of beaches, I put the cocktail umbrellas away. It's non-stop from here. Cleaning the bedrooms and communal areas, kitchen prep washing up. Later, much later, Shay has a go at fixing the boiler. I'm still washing up, boiling the kettle until it too gives up the ghost. Today is a different day. Shay's sweater features most prominently a leopard. Also fighter planes, rockets, explosions, shrapnel and bullet rain. We are pacifists, but we have tanks on our sweaters. In brackets, the times we live in. We gather at the beach like storm clouds, but the critical natural event is that the tide is so low we can walk to the fort, no need for sea legs. Attack, we issue our war cry, onto the mud flats. The white Reeboks are mincemeat in a flush, in brackets, the leopard and also the mud. The rest of us are on target, we are in fact unstoppable. But what about peace? Yes, exactly. The leopard has a massive tear in its eye. The leopard has a crazy smile on its face. We get to the fort. We're about to enter. A sign says, stay out, stay alive. Does it? It does. We have second thoughts. We really are war crybabies. Attack, Shay whispers, but the leopard is already charging. Thank you again. Um, uh, listening to that um, extra, uh, the audience could tell that you know humor is pretty important mm -hmm. in your writing. Uh, is this something you are conscious of, or maybe it's just because marginalized people often have to use humor mm -hmm. as a coping mechanism? Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. That, that humor definitely used to be. Um, it's not just a coping. Egg, um, not just I wouldn't sort of so much say it's a coping mechanism humor you kind of humor in queer was more like a queer strategy I guess his, um, historically as well so it's kind of quite a part I, I sort of um, take a little bit of issue with this idea that humor that you bury things under humor under putting a brave face on and smiling that's not really how I understand humor in a queer tradition or even in a working class condition it's much more um, kind of actually a really powerful um, strategy and like a way of connecting to to people and kind of really actually producing sort of um, really cutting critiques of things if if there's with with some humor in it. So it's kind of quite. Uh, I think humor is a as a sort of a um, strategy is quite political and quite subversive. So I I work in these traditions as well. It's queer and working class humor. And also kind of as a writer, you want to keep yourself a bit entertained and amused. That's one of the um, functions that writing fulfills for me as well. Is but you wouldn't often think of uh, experimental writing as funny. They do or they don't? <laughs> no, they don't. I don't think so. <laughs> That's the I I often find it funny, but I don't think like the mainstream public finds it funny. Oh, that's interesting because um, obviously, like going back to things like Dada and stuff like that, there was a lot of humor in these kind of um, sort of avant-garde types of writing, as well. So I think humor has always been quite big, um, in in avant-garde um, cultures. But I guess it's sort of probably disappeared a little bit from what we now term literary fiction which is often very s serious and very, uh, yeah. Maybe so it has to do with this idea that literary fiction has to be written by, the, by a lone genius in the, yeah, potentially. in the ivory tower. Yeah, and in order for it to have weight, it needs to explore like the depth of human being and the depth and humor is not seen to be 
located in the depths of human existence, I guess. I don't know. I think it's kind of probably a middle class thing. It's like, you know, the working, I'm not saying it, right? But potentially the working classes would say that the middle classes don't have a sense of humor. <laughs> but I'll just leave that there. Um, I wanted to read another bit from uh, the, your introduction to Liberating the Canon. Uh, because I think I, I think it's a you know a brilliant bit of writing that is kind of a call to arms to change things in the you know literary world. Mm -hmm. um, I, I I like this bit a lot. But widening participation, to use the term, in literature also requires critical engagement with literary form. The writing itself has to transgress the various structures through which the avant-garde literary canon has perpetuated itself and its exclusiveness. To reiterate, the writing needs to work across various systems of oppression, intersectionality, across formal distinction, prose and poetry, critical and creative, and the various genres, and across disciplines. Saints goes for publishing, editing, reading, referencing, and designing curricula. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, I mean, we have a little time. Uh, what What is next for you? Are you working on a new... Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm working on a couple of things that are kind of um, that are exciting. I'm working on a, a, a thing pot potentially with the ICA, and I'm working on a, a thing potentially with the DCA, which is Dundee um, Contemporary Arts. So I'm um, working in the art context just for the next little while. But I'm also my next. I'm st I've started to write a new book, which will be a more of a critical book but in a very unusual way. So I'm trying to do with criticism or critical theory, kind of what, I, what I'm doing with fiction a little bit, like break down some of the kind of the sort of um, genre distinctions that that work in, in, in kind of a more essay writing and stuff like that. So I'm trying to do something like that. Like try and write, a, it'll be a totally hybrid text. It'll be something completely different. But uh, yeah, so I am working on a new on a new book. And you continue to uh, teach. Has teaching influenced the world you approach your own writing? Yeah, I'm definitely teaching. <laughs> um, yeah, teaching completely in shapes whatever you do. I guess. Yeah, just I'm at Roehampton. I'm also lucky to teach working class and queer and students, black students, students of color. So it's kind of like Roehampton is one of the post 92 universities. So if that's um, there is still there's somewhat kind of diversity happening in the stu student population or student demographic at universities like that. So hopefully they'll survive this Tory government, <laughs> you know, but um, yeah, teaching definitely influences. It's kind of big starts becoming a conversation because you teach some of the stuff that you're working on to the students, then they respond to it in ways that you will, would have never expected. It makes you rethink things. So yeah, it's, it's, it's um, definitely, yeah, I'm that's what I, that's what I do in my part of my job teaching, I guess. Is there anything else uh, you want to say? Some project you want to highlight that people should know about? Um, <laughs> they should. They should. I can't think of anything. They should. They, if they wanted to sort of be introduced to different kind of literatures, queers read this at the ICA would be a good starting point, and maybe to sort of check out one of my books if you. If you Google them, you'll find them and they won't cost you a lot of money. So even if you hated, you, you would have only spent four quid, you know, mm. <laughs> so it's kind of maybe worth the shot. And um, that's the only final, final, final thing I want to say is absolutely thank you for these brilliant questions that you've you've come up with and for being so supportive and for such a kind of a, um, being so, such an engaging conversational partner. Thank you so much, Laura. Well, thank you for being here for my first show. And uh I wanted maybe to end the show with um, a quote from one of the blurbs of uh, We Are Made of Time on a Staff that appeared at the beginning. Uh, Irish writer uh, Joanna Walsh says this, Isabel Weidner will save the nation and save our souls. And I think Joanna is absolutely right about this. <laughs> no, I hope not. Thank you so much. Um, Thank you so much. This has been uh, Sweet Chew, won't you? at Resonance uh, 104.4 FM. I have been your host, uh, Lara Alonso Corona, talking to Isabel Weidner.
Resonance, 104.4 FM. This program has been brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you liked what you heard and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.